Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, April 17th, 2023, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, today we are starting a new study, a book of First Timothy, and it is part of one of the three pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. And over the next couple of months, we are going to be looking at these three books, and we're going to be looking at the way they speak on leading the church in both order and sound doctrine. And so today we're going to start with First Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You see, Timothy had been stationed in Ephesus, and Paul had been warned severely and urgently that the Ephesian elders against false teaching. And in Acts 20, 29 through 30, he had said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, Paul's predictions were not exaggerated. And we see here from his instructions to Timothy that false teaching and wayward doctrine was looking at the church squarely in the face. They had allowed the pagan culture of Ephesus, home to the temple of Artemis, to infiltrate their worship and to sway them from the truth of the gospel. You see, the thinking of Ephesus so mirrors our culture. They were looking to please the flesh and personal freedom and pleasure was the goal. Self-expression and self-exaltation was seen only as a path to life. And Ephesus was a large, diverse, and religiously complex culture which flourished commercially. They found good news in their trade and self-worth. And beloved, we know especially coming off Easter Sunday uh, several weekends ago, that there is no joy and no life and no good news that neglects Jesus and amidst the cross. You see, Jesus was not just a good man with wise sayings who loved everyone just the way they were. No, Jesus was fully God who became fully man in order to point the way back to the law of God. And the cross of Christ was proof that all humanity is sinful and deserves punishment. And yet even in humanity's wickedness, God is gracious and merciful and takes the punishment that we deserve. This frees us to live godly as we seek to mimic our Savior. This is what the first couple of verses, Paul's introduction to this letter to Timothy says, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and as of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, Timothy is a man in his 30s and a a, a younger man than Paul. He was a man in whom Paul had poured his life into as a true son of the faith, we see verse 2. Timothy had been stationed in Ephesus to combat the false teaching there and to instruct the church in the way of godly living. And Paul writes this epistle to help Timothy organize the church, but also to help Timothy confront false teaching and doctrine within the believers at Ephesus. Some of these false teachings included, as we'll see in verse four here in a minute, the preoccupation with myths, genealogies, and speculations. 
They were looking at ways to, of, of, of myths that had been passed on, of speculating what was coming in the future, or even looking at blessings that would flow from genealogies. But then we also will see in a minute in verse 7, the misuse of the law. They were, they were misusing the law. We were mishandling the law of God for their own worldly doctrine. But then on in chapter one, we see the excuses for rampant immorality. In other words, they were giving themselves a license for rampant immorality. Almost like what Paul preached against in Romans chapter six, verse one, when he says, are we to continue to go on sinning so grace can abound? They had a license that they were bringing. But then we also will see in chapter four, they, they had a seared conscience that were excusing and explaining away sin. So in other words, they were looking at sin and trying to say, oh, it's not really sin. They were explaining it away. But then we also see they were forbidding marriage, food, and the gifts of God. They were being legalistic. And otherwise, they were doing what the church at Galatia was doing as well as grace plus. And then we see in chapter six, there were continued quarrels and controversies over minor points. They were, they were making the minor things major and making the major things minor. And then also we see they were using their godliness for material gain. And all of these things diverted the people from God's word. And Paul said in first Timothy chapter four, one, that all of this ungodly teaching, all of this unsound doctrine, that ultimately it was demonic. And so the key passage of First Timothy is First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And this is what Paul says. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. You see, beloved, this is not just a book for pastors and leaders, but First Timothy is a book for all of God's people. This book trains us to spot truth and biblical doctrine. This book helps us find churches that are biblically aligned and biblically organized for the proclamation of the gospel of Christ Jesus. This book is about how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. The church was God's idea, which belongs to Jesus the Christ. Jesus founded the church by his life, death, and resurrection. And he has continued to build upon the church by his Holy Spirit, which he left with his people. A few more things we see from 1 Timothy from these first two verses. First, we see the letter is authoritative. Paul makes it clear in verse 1 that he was an apostle and thus called by Jesus to preach. And while Paul might not have been one of the other apostles that walked around with Jesus during his ministry, he makes it clear, I am an apostle by the command of God. In other words, God called me. He called me out while I was on the road to Damascus, and he set me apart to be a disciple. This book was inspired by God through his grace, his mercy, and his peace through the Apostle Paul. This is God's word and his authority because it is inspired and inerrant. Everything around us seems to be caving in. We need to hear God's word and submit to it, knowing that what God has said is true and good and right. But the second thing we learn from the first two verses is this, this book was timely and essential. In verse one, we see that this was written to Timothy, as Paul said, my true son in the faith. This book is personal. We shouldn't feel like we opened up a trunk full of personal letters and oops, here's first Timothy. No, this was a book that was 
and is intimately for us as God's people. And it's timely and it's essential. Timothy lived in Ephesus in the first century and we live in 2023, but this book is still essential and it's still timely. And we start to see that that our culture actually mirrors the culture of Ephesus because there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Ephesus was large and diverse and religiously complex. We live in a world that is large and diverse and religiously complex. But also Ephesus was a culture that flourished commercially and put their hope in their trade. They made it their self-worth. And beloved, is that not our culture? where we are are so preoccupied with our trade, we're so preoccupied of our work being in our career or in those things that bring us personal glory. But then the third thing we see from these first two verses is that this book, with all of its warnings, is also filled with great hope. In verse one, Paul says, Jesus Christ, our hope. Jesus is our only hope in this sin-sick world. He is our savior and he is our true life. And these words bring hope because they orient us not to look at the fading glory of the world around us, but direct us to the grace, mercy, and peace from God. And God's dealing with us, his people are full of grace, mercy, and peace. And this is good news for all of us as we continue to battle sin. And so now let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Paul continues to Timothy, As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that it issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, beloved, we must guard the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. And the way we guard the gospel is not by preaching and wailing against the wickedness around us, but by continually focusing our teaching on the glorious nature of truth found in God's word. We are a sinful, messy fools who Jesus loved all the way to the cross. We preach not against the wickedness of the world, but on the glorious nature of Jesus. That's why in verse three, Paul says, I charge persons not to teach any different doctrine, but what? To teach the glorious gospel of Christ with a sincere faith. Paul wants Timothy to stay at Ephesus to do just this, to preach the gospel. If we lose the gospel, we lose everything we have. Ephesus as a city was filled with paganism and rampant immorality and idolatry because of the cultural pressures 
and they needed the gospel. They didn't need a 10-step program. They didn't need self-help to get them out of their misery. They didn't need some type of program. They needed the gospel. And beloved, this is so true in the ministry we have to vulnerable children and families. They don't need a self-help class. They don't need a 10-step program. They don't need to find themselves. No, what they need is the gospel of Christ Jesus that shows us that we ultimately want to lose ourselves in his glorious life. And so Paul gives two cautions and three exhortations for sound doctrine. The first caution, we must not add to the law's demands. You see, the false teachers were putting rules and regulations on people that were not in God's words. Verse four, they were wandering into myths and speculations. The false teachers were adding weight and regulations that were never intended by God. They were teaching against marriage and certain foods. They were trying to tie weights to the people that they could not hold. We must not add to the man's of God's law. It's his law, not ours. We must never add to what the law says. We must never add to what the gospel says. The gospel says that when we come to Christ, realizing that we have nothing of any beauty, of any majesty to offer, and we sacrifice ourselves to him, willfully submitting to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. So we must not add to what the law demands. But then second, the second caution that Paul gives is we must never believe that the law saves. We must never believe in legalism. There was an arrogance and ignorance amongst those teaching in Ephesus. Verse seven tells us they were making confident assertions in the things they did not understand. Think about that. They were making confident assertions in things they did not understand. Without understanding, they were trying to be confident and assert. And that's a double positive there with confident assertions. An assertion is a, something that someone says with great confidence. So they were more than just with great confidence. They were overly confident and they didn't even understand. In other words, they were ignorant and arrogant all at the same time. But the teaching was also full of empty speculations, verse 4, and fruitless discussion. See, the false teachers were producing confusion and deception among the church. This is what Acts 4, verses 11 through 12, Peter says this. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then Peter says this at Pentecost, and there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. The law condemns, it cannot save. The law leads us to see the only salvation that comes ultimately through Christ Jesus. So two cautions, do not add to what the law demands and never believe that the law saves. But then we see three exhortations to this great law and to sound doctrine. The first is that the law shows us God's grace and constraint. Verse nine tells us, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and the profane. Oh, you see, beloved, huh, the law shows us that we 
truly deserve the wages of sin, death. The law helps us recognize the boundaries between good and evil so that we can avoid sin. The law was written for law breakers. The law shows us that we have fallen short, but yet shows us the grace and constraint and mercy of God who sends Jesus to redeem those who could never even begin to help themselves. Romans 7, 7 says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had been for the law, yet if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The speed limit sign makes us aware of what the law is on the roadway. And God's law shows us his standard and ultimately shows us our depravity. The knowledge ultimately leads us to repentance, which is the abundant grace and mercy of God. So the God, the law shows us God's grace and constraint. But then second, the law shows God's condemnation of the sinner. When we sin, the law becomes a testimony against us, showing that we have disobeyed. We have one of those speed limit signs outside of our neighborhood here in Birmingham, which posts the speed limit. And then right underneath, it tracks your speed to show ultimately that you are transgressing the law. And I may or may not know from personal experience that if you go too fast, it'll just say plain out, slow down. You see, the law makes our rebellion apparent. And this realization is an essential part of salvation. Who needs a savior if they don't know that they've already been condemned? The law opens our eyes to the fact that we are guilty before God. Romans 8, 8, those who are of the flesh cannot please God. And beloved, this is the gospel. Christ, the law keeper, has paid the penalty for the law breakers. The law doesn't save us. It leads us to Christ and he is the one that saves us. That's why Paul says to Timothy in verse 11 here, chapter one, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Oh, beloved, it is good news that the law shows God's condemnation of the sinner because ultimately the law shows us God's will for the redeemed. You see, we want to honor Christ as his followers and God's moral law instructs us on how to imitate our father. I remember when my son Caleb was, was younger, when he was about eight years old, I was in India and I was buying this handmade uh, blazer for about $15. And, and he saw it and he wanted one so he could match me. And even on Easter Sunday, I remember one Easter Sunday, uh, maybe a year later, he and I wore those blazers and matched on Easter Sunday. Now that he's 18, I'm just trying to look like him. But, but ultimately, children want to mimic a good mom and a good dad. They want to they mimic good parents. And as we come to Christ, we want to honor Christ as his followers. And God's moral law instructs us on how we can ultimately imitate our father. First Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, God's law reveals his character and shows us how to love God and how to love our neighbors. God's law is therefore no longer a crushing hammer, but a divine guide. Beloved, we must know how to identify truth, how to handle truth, and how to preach the truth. Our world doesn't need help seminars 
or to find their true identity. No, our world needs the truth that we celebrate on Easter Sunday and the truth we celebrate every day that we have breath. Jesus Christ is the only one that can change our lives, change our hearts, and change our minds. And he's the only one that the world needs. And his gospel is sound doctrine. And his gospel needs to be our light. Thank you for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. This week, we are praying for Lifeline's Harbor Family Program. Lifeline's Harbor Family Program is about family preservation and placing uh, children into homes uh, for a short amount of time until their birth parents can get on their feet and ultimately those families could be preserved and they could stay out of foster care. And so let's pray for both the families who need Harbor Families, the families that are serving in Harbor Families, and ultimately for the children that are being served through Harbor Families. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the churches that are already engaged with the Harbor Families program. We ask that you would strengthen them and give them great wisdom as they continue in serving these birth families, continue serving these children, and ultimately supporting these Harbor Families. We pray that even more churches would become engaged in and passionate about family preservation. I pray that more churches would see how you want us to be the ointment to the hurts of the world as the church, that we would come alongside of families that are struggling and help them to preserve their families. Lord, we pray that those families who are struggling and who are one step away from crisis, that they would learn more about Harbor families and be able to get engaged with a Harbor family before uh, that involvement leads to the complications of the government system. We pray for our system We pray for more community players to to join and for more systems, more government entities to understand that the church can support these families in crisis. We pray for all of those families who are serving these children and these families. God, we just ask that these Harbor families would be strengthened, that they would show your grace and your gospel to the children and to the families that they serve. We pray for those families in crisis and who are seeking out temporary respite care through Harbor Families. Would you help them as they get on their feet? Would you help them find jobs? Would you help them find stability? Would you help them find the gospel? We pray for the hope of the gospel to be evident in every interaction that these placing families have, that they would have interactions with the local church and with his people that would ultimately lead them to the gospel. Lord, would you just let these relationships that are formed through Harbor Families last long past the temporary housing, but would these be relationships that would be lifelong relationships, positive relationships that would ultimately point these families back to the gospel. Father, we pray for the children in these homes. We pray that you would show them in the temporary time that they're in these homes, the, the hope of the gospel. We pray that you would show them the love of a family that would, would take them through the rest of their life. And we pray for host families who open up their homes. We just ask that you would give them wisdom, but we also pray for more, more harbor families, more host families. We also pray for navigators and ministry captains and resource supports, all the volunteers who wrap around these families and show and live out the hope of the gospel. Lord, we just ultimately pray for ministry impact. We ask that more communities and more churches would embrace the idea of Harbor families and that you would rise them up to partner with Lifeline in this ministry. 
And again, we pray that more municipalities, more states, more governments would understand the need for family preservation and that they would see Harbor Families as a true place where family preservation can be realized. Lord God, ultimately, you are our Harbor Family. You are the one that is our safe place and our safe harbor. And we ask that you would ultimately be glorified in this ministry, that you be glorified in everything that we do and everything that we say. And we ask all of this in your precious name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.